This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome to episode 241 of the Self Work Podcast. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and I'm delighted to have a guest today. Victoria Garrick is a former Division I volleyball player, TED Talk speaker, social media influencer, and mental health advocate. So, those are the facts about Victoria. She hosts her hit podcast, Real Pod, and she's got about one and a half million people who follow her message, and I understand why. She's very authentic. She's incredibly energetic and passionate, but she's also struggled with depression as well as a binge eating disorder, the latter of which she's only now started opening up about. And you're going to hear all about that. I know that those of you who are younger will be fascinated with her, and parents whose kids are highly into sports also need to listen as she talks about how the competitiveness of sports and winning can often unintentionally work to create feelings of wanting it all to end, and I mean not just the sports, life itself. Through her work, she's also created a nonprofit called The Hidden Opponent and is marshalling and creating support organizations on college campuses to athletes who need a place for their mental health struggles to be understood and accepted. The pressure can be immense, as she explains in our interview. Sometimes coaches and teammates want to understand, but maybe they do, maybe they don't. And how parents can be trying to understand as well, but there can be a lot of room for miscommunication because the whole family has sometimes been organized around athletics. And so starting to change that, starting to think of it differently, and what she talks about, the freedom of just being a normal college student, what taking a break from sports taught her about herself and about how to take care of herself mentally and emotionally. It's a fascinating story. But before we get into the interview, here's a quick message from a sponsor who makes all of this possible, Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens came on board SelfWork now a few months ago with an offer for SelfWork listeners to try their product. And because of being a SelfWork listener, you'd receive bonus products as a gift with a subscription. I don't really know how many of you have tried it, but quite a few I can tell. And I'd love to hear from you about how you're feeling. Please email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com because I'd love to share your experience here on SelfWork. So some of you are saying, what is Athletic Greens? It's a life-changing nutritional habit. Their daily all-in-one superfood power is your nutritional essential. It's by far the easiest and most delicious nutritional habit that you can add to your daily routine today and empower yourself toward better habits. And it's a lot more pleasant than eating celery, I promise you. I've never liked powdered things, but this one isn't too sweet, but also not too grainy. And I look forward to it in the morning. You're actually just getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis. And you don't have to take multiple supplements, just one thing. I take a scoop a day and know that I'm getting 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood, and more. In fact, I just had my annual OBGYN appointment, and his last words to me were, make sure you're getting enough D3, and the supplement you receive as the self-work bonus with a subscription contains both D3 and K2. 
So I smiled and said, oh, I got that. I hope you'll try it. Both my husband and I love it and have kept it up now for several months because it's making a difference. So here's the link, athleticgreens.com slash self-work. That's, of course, HTTPS colon slash slash athleticgreens.com slash self-work. And I'll have that link for you in the show notes. And now, without further ado, here's a very open and honest conversation with Victoria Garrick. I cannot uh, thank you enough for being here. And I, I, what I'm so interested in is really starting, if you don't mind talking about it, you kind of started your TED Talk as you entered college. That was your timeline. But I'd like to back it up a little bit if we could. I'd like to back it up to the culture that you grew up in, the family, as far as how did that culture or your family begin to teach you about vulnerability and emotional expression? I love this. First of all, let's dive in. Let's dissect. Nothing is too intense. Um, Dr. Margaret, you can ask me anything. We have a live therapy session. <laughs> I pulled <laughs> nothing back. Um, and it's funny because I was talking about this yesterday with a friend in that um, my parents are so loving. I mean, they're the best parents. I'm so grateful for them. However, when I look back, and this is something that I discovered in therapy at USC, is that, you know, there was an emphasis and an extra celebration for achievement, for doing awesome things. And while I never got in trouble or I was less loved if I made mistakes or I failed, I just wanted to always win. And I wanted to always do the best because that was celebrated. And I also grew up in a very competitive. um, That's what I was wondering. (laughs) White picket fence, um, affluent neighborhood. And, you know, it was just the kind of community where, you know, the moms on the block were just, you know, always casually bragging about what their kid was up to and, um, you know, how their kid was, was great and their grades. And so I just kind of, from a young age, always had this desire and, and just a need to be the best at everything Mm -hmm. that I did. What was this comment that I noticed? I think you said something like, I, I couldn't quit because of, I had a zest for competition. I, I was all about competition and that my little therapist brain went, could that be innately because you were such a powerful athlete or was that born with sibling rivalry? Was that born because your parents were very competitive? I don't think my husband ever let my son win at shoots and ladders. I think that... <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, my, no, my parents actually weren't athletes. So we always joke that it like skipped a generation. My mom's <laughs> dad, who I never met, had passed away uh, or I did, who I didn't know very well, played college baseball at Miami. So we think we get oh, wow. the athletic genes from him. But my older brother was a division one golfer at UCLA. So, you know, growing up, I see he, his success. He's an incredible athlete. And, you know, there was never competition amongst the family, but there was just this understanding of, you know, we do the best that we can. 
And, you know, I really took that to heart. And like I said, it is kind of weird. And maybe you can provide some color on this, but like there was never a situation where if I didn't win a game, like my parents were the most supportive, like they never yelled at me. They never didn't let me go out. Like, you know, they, so I don't even know where I, why I felt so scared to not achieve. Like it was, Mm -hmm. it was very personal. Yes. I, and in fact, I think you have read the book, What Made Maddie Run by Kate Fagan. And it's about a, a young track um, star at University of Pennsylvania or UPenn, Maddie Holleran, who took her own life very symbolically in many ways. But I pulled a quote from the book that I thought, given the little bit I knew about you, that perhaps this might fit. She was texting other track stars about her desire to transfer to another team or just play club sports or something like that. She just didn't know how to do it. And here's the quote. Her parents were doing the best they could, trying to shepherd their ailing daughter toward the best possible solution. Wouldn't she regret giving up on her dreams so quickly? Because the truth is, it's the important part, because the truth is when you don't know the stakes, When you don't know how high the wire really is, dancing on the edge doesn't seem reckless. It seems like the only place to walk. Mm. I just thought that was so profound because I think that as parents, we do see that our our children have potential and have these greater abilities and we we want to support those. And yet there can be a dynamic that's formed that the child gets the message that really not our love is conditional, but that the yardstick is always high. And again, you're not shamed for mistakes or or struggles, but at the same time, there's just this huge celebration and enjoyment of that success. I don't think it's pathological. I just think it's, whether it's about cooking or or sports or music or whatever it happens to be, that parents can probably unintentionally give their children the idea that part of your worth is involved in your achievement in this area. Again, I don't think it's intentional. And of course, Maddie had suicidal thoughts and, and you have not shared that, that you had anything like that. You had depression, but not suicidal thoughts. Is that something that's true or did you also struggle? Well, in the TED talk, you know, I mentioned that I did have those thoughts about my riding my bike and, you know, maybe getting hit by a car. That's right. That was kind of the extent of, of those thoughts. And it was never like I didn't want to be alive because I did think I had the understanding that I could have a great life on the other side of this, or mm-hmm. if this wasn't my life. And I've had people ask me, you know, coaches, you know, you know, what was the difference between you um, and another kind of scenario or another athlete. And I always just think like, I had this understanding of the pain can stop if I get, get rid of this lifestyle, but it was tough to to imagine quitting volleyball, not being at school because I did want to be the best. And this was my dream school. And I was playing like this idea that I would stop playing or I would quit or I would, you know, leave school for a bit just felt like 
failing almost, or it just didn't really feel like something I wanted to do. So I, you know, so, so that's why I did end up taking time off and leaving the team for a few months. Cause my junior year, I was still in my depression and I just realized I couldn't keep going that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think at the end of the day for me, I was just more fantasizing about how I could press pause and, and laying in a hospital bed was more appealing than getting to the gym. Wow. Well, well, this brings up a topic that I think is very pertinent here. It's about an identity issue. It's really that fear of the loss of your identity. And, and, and you mentioned frequently in the TED Talk, you know, there would be somebody ready and waiting and eager to take your place. And so I think that's true not only in sports, but in, you know, any kind of, of field where there's a, just a lot of competition for a few spots. So how did you, when you took off those months, Victoria, how did you handle that loss of identity or did you not really experience it? You just feared it. It honestly felt nice to mm-hmm. be someone else. And I remember, you know, putting on normal clothes because I didn't have to wear like sports shorts and big t-shirts. Like I could put on jeans and nice blouse and put makeup on and I could put a bracelet on, you know, it was like, I could step into that normal girly, just how people dress going to school every day when they don't have to shower twice a day, sweat in the middle of the day, not be wearing jewelry because they have five minutes to change before. Like I took, I found joy in those little things of um, getting to do things that I couldn't do as an athlete. And so so, much more freedom. So it's just your identity away from sports. Yeah. And honestly, it excited me. And I really enjoyed that. I think I took this like video of myself dancing in my room on like the first day of spring class because I knew I was just a normal student today. Like I put, I sent a picture to my mom. I put on a normal outfit. I didn't have to go to the practice gym. I didn't talk to anyone on the team. Like, and it it felt a lot better. And of course, like after the fall of my junior years, when I took a mental health leave from volleyball. And so I got Christmas break to kind of like group away from everything for a few weeks. Then I came back to school, but I was just a student. And so, you know, that was, that was really nice. How did your coaches and teammates handle that, Victoria? It was a really interesting situation and the timing worked in my favor because my coach um, was leaving and we were going to get a new coach for senior year and it was happening kind of sudden. So those first few weeks back on campus, I don't even think the volleyball team had an active head coach. There was like volunteers and like assistant coaches who were running the ship, but it was, it was chaotic. And if you know anything about college sports, you know that if the head coach isn't there, nothing is really happening of importance. I mean, you're getting reps in, but when a head coach comes in, they're wiping the slate clean. They're going to teach you their technique and how they want it. So, you know, there wasn't really much happening with the program. It was kind of like on hold, even though the girls had to show up every day and train, which was another reason why I was like, I especially don't want to be there. Like it's only keeping me in this low place and nothing's happening. So I'd rather take this time for me. And fortunately, you know, my psychologist advocated for me and the athletic director was totally supportive. And, um, you know, the understanding was I'm going to take some time off, get to a better place and then come back. But in my 
mind, I thought I'm not coming back. I thought this was just my way to let it down easy and like give myself a safety net. But in my mind, I was like, there's no way that I come back. And then uh, my teammates, you know, were frustrated. And I understand that, you know, everyone probably wishes that they took the liberty to ask or that they, they did that. And, you know, it took a lot for me to do that. I think when it comes to your mental health, you have to put yourself first eventually. And it's very, very, very hard to put yourself first. And I think a lot of them maybe thought that I was selfish um, and that sucked. But at the end of the day, I had to put myself first. I would rather get to a better place mentally than please people and have them think something of me just to, you know, um, make others happy and then continue feeling like I'm bearing myself under weight every day. So yeah, it wasn't ideal. Um, but I understand, you know, everyone has their, their own things that they're going through and, you know, I didn't need anyone's approval to feel confident and that's what I needed to do. Like I knew how I felt. I knew what my thoughts were in my head every day and I knew I had to do this. Um, and so that's what gave me the confidence to, to take the break. And then we got a new coach and the new coach, you know, called me after a few months um, and was really nice and rec- and recruited me back. And I and I had missed the sport and I had gotten better and I'd weaned off my depression meds. And I kind of felt like, OK, I've got one more season. It's only a semester. It's a whole different coach, a whole different environment. I'll feel like a freshman again. Like, why don't I go? And if I hate it, I'll leave. You know, I could walk out the door if I don't like it. And so, you know, I found whatever love for the game was left in me and I did my senior season. Well, that that's the optimal ending, really, isn't it, for this? Because you, you could do both. You could enjoy much better mental health as well as play a sport that was beautiful to you and that you loved and that you were very good at doing. So I can understand that. You know, one of the things that you talk about a lot is your Instagram feed and, and all that kind of thing that you posed and other, other of your friends did the same thing. I find that that's very normal for people in your generation and actually in the older generations. In fact, people have been sitting on my couch and crying and, and struggling with huge anxiety or depression. And they'll say, oh, I want you to see something on my feed and they'll show it to me. And it, it looks completely alien to the person that is sitting in front of me. And I kind of wondered what your other friends, perhaps not your sports friends or your your sports or your team, but how they also felt about this sort of charade, this this social media charade. Or are people becoming more cognizant of it and they don't want to do it as much anymore? Well, at the time, everyone was... Well, the majority of people were focused and cared about their social media presence, especially at a school like USC. I mean, it's known for having gorgeous students and beautiful California girls and dreamy California guys. And that was an added element is just living in Los Angeles looks and appearance, unfortunately, is an important factor and it's something people value. And I easily fell into that culture and that mindset. You know, it's like you, you want to be cool and be liked and you do what everyone else is doing. And, you know, subconsciously 
you start to care more and more and more about those things. I think now, fortunately, obviously I'm in a completely different place with my image and I don't prioritize it at all. And it's not the most important thing about me. And, you know, my social media now, um, a younger version of me would be mortified, but um, I'm glad for the growth. (laughs) That's funny. A younger version of me would also be mortified. <laughs> Some people have said, oh, you know, you're, you must be just been really easy for you to talk about all your vulnerabilities. I said, no, it's been an interesting path. So <laughs> I wanted to ask you about two or three other things. For one thing, just the recent judicial decision to allow collegiate athletes to get compensated. And I wondered how you might feel about that decision and its connection with either hiding depression and anxiety, even more so, because you certainly aren't going to become the, you know, your picture isn't going to be on the front of a cereal box or or socks or whatever it is, if you, you know, if you are struggling with mental health, or that might be something that would be even more stigmatizing. I think that this change is great. It should have been done a long time ago. It's a basic human right to sure. Be oh, I agree. The change is great. Yeah, to monetize kind of- name, image, and likeness, and every other student at the school can do that, even if they're on, uh, you know, theater scholarships or um, engineering yes. scholarships. So when you're on a sports scholarship, you know, it's interesting how athletes aren't able to. And I think there's also a really important difference that the general public needs to understand is most athletes are currently just fighting for the rights to monetize their own name, image, and likeness, not get paid like deposits into their bank account for being student athletes. Right. Obviously, right. that's a whole separate debate, but people have to understand that there really should be no pushback to athletes wanting to be able to control monetization about their name, image, and likeness. Um, And so that's a big difference between just getting paid to play. Um, And so I actually think that this will create more opportunity um, for athletes to, to take advantage of the platforms they have. And I think a lot of times the easy thing is to think of the star players, oh, the quarterback and the player of the year, you know, they're going to get these ad deals and these sponsorships and make all this money. But I also think it's going to incentivize those people on the team who maybe they're not the star player, but they're the life of the party. They're the class clown. They're a vlogger. They like to do a podcast. They X, Y, Z. And then they start getting deals because you know, they are this awesome personality and people love that they're a part of the team. And I think it will maybe be a way for that person who's not going to go pro or not going to get this hundred million dollar pro contract. Which most of them do not, obviously. Yeah, (laughs) most, most don't. 99% don't. So I think, um, I think in that light, it's really encouraging. And they will also encourage athletes to think about who they are beyond their sport when the sport ends, you know, I love that thought. Love that thought. We don't think about it until we're graduated, but now athletes are thinking about how do I leverage this and the connections I want to make and you know, what is, how is this going to help me when sports are over? So I think it's great. I agree. And I've, I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out. I'm just a little concerned that the veil will be a little harder to see through with mental health issues. But we'll see. Maybe maybe some people will come out and say, you know, this is going to be my platform and and you can play great sports and deal with anxiety or whatever. I'm certainly 
hoping that would occur. I wanted to talk a little bit about body image and eating disorders because I walked away from your TED Talk not quite knowing was it just a body dysmorphia that you were dealing with that you just, you know, saw your body differently or did you actually have restriction issues and, and where does all that stand now for you? I know you're much older and so, you know, you're out of that collegiate environment. Yeah. So the TED talk is an interesting thing because while I felt comfortable revealing depression, anxiety, I did not feel comfortable at all revealing my binge eating disorder that was going on at the time. So that wasn't something that publicly I spoke about until many months after the talk. Um, And it actually was accidental. Like I had done this interview for this magazine and I didn't know how much was going to be included. And I'm a super talkative, honest person. And I ended up, you know, just spilling everything to this reporter. (laughs) And then this video comes out. That's all about me having an eating disorder. I almost felt like that happened without my consent. Really. Um, I just wasn't prepared. Obviously I consented to the interview, but I didn't have the understanding yet of what it meant to just do an interview and let people walk away with, with your information and that you don't get to look it over before it gets put out there, you know? Um, so that, uh, came, came out later. And honestly, I didn't share that media piece anywhere because I was so embarrassed, but I ended up having strangers find it. And then strangers message me and say, Oh, I saw this article and I'm also a binge eater and I struggled with restriction and compulsive emotional eating. And then through seeing how many people had reached out about that, it gave me the confidence to start to talk about it on my platforms. Um, but I think, you know, it speaks to the stigma of not only eating disorders in general, but binge eating disorder, which is not as glamorous and it's not as popular to talk about. And I felt comfortable standing on that stage talking about my depression, but not admitting what my eating habits were like. Oh, I I, I would say that is very characteristic of many of the people that I've seen through the years that there's something about whether it's overeating or whether it's restricting or binge purging or whatever it is. There's something about this fear that people will say, well, it's just food. Just get over it. You know, what are you doing? And that it it somehow would be easy. Eating disorders, I believe, are the hardest disorders to actually treat and to be, quote-unquote, successful as a patient. I had anorexia in college, and I still battle anorexic thinking, and I'm in my 60s. And so, you know, I I can understand and, and really empathize with the idea of how hard that is to, to talk about more publicly. I applaud you for stumbling into it, because I... There are huge amounts of women and men who have this as a as a problem, and so uh, huge percentages. So I'm so glad that you did. Well, I'm definitely in a place in my life where I'm comfortable because I talk about everything online. That's kind of my thing, but mm-hmm. I have to set my own boundaries for you know what I'm comfortable with. And so I think sure. for me, it's like if it involves someone else, I don't share it, and if I'm not if I don't have an understanding of how I need to work through it or heal, like if I'm not two steps in the right direction, I probably don't share yet. Like I would never post and be like today this happened and I'm, I'm a mess. I would post two weeks later and be like last week I struggled with this and you know, I'm I'm fine now. Um, But in terms of the eating disorder uh, and body image issues, you can ask me anything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, 
how has treatment helped? So I found a practice of, of eating and a way to approach food that has been incredibly helpful. And it's called intuitive eating. Are you familiar with Yes, it? I am familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Intuitive eating has been wonderful for me. And it's just reconnecting back to my body's why don't you tell why don't you tell listeners what exactly it is yeah intuitive eating is a um mindfulness approach to food that involves rational thought satisfaction um emotion into deciding you know what when and how you're going to eat and i think the most basic way to understand it is if you have to pee, you get an urge from your body that you need to pee. You go to the bathroom and you pee. You know, you don't think to yourself, oh, well, how many times do I pee today? Oh my gosh, I'm peeing so much. This is so embarrassing. The celebrities aren't peeing as much as me. I have to, I have to hold the pee. This is, this is horrible. No, you just get the urge and you pee. And so intuitive eating is trying to connect us back to our normal human instincts of, oh, I'm getting a hunger cue. You know, what sounds satisfying? What's going to give me the energy or the feeling that I want to, to have in this moment? And, and there's uh, that rational thought piece. There's yeah. that people where you're attaching your, your thoughtfulness, your mindfulness to the actual act of eating. Right. And then, you know, with the options available to you, making the best choice and checking in with your body. Am I full? Am I hungry? How does this make me feel? And essentially, you know, stopping when you're full. Um, But of course, we're all humans and there's times that we don't stop when we're full and we emotionally eat. But in general, I feel like I am very in tune with my body. Um, And I kind of the interesting thing about my healing journey with the depression as well is like after I kind of realized I had all these problems and I then realized it's not my fault. There's nothing wrong with me. This happens to a lot of people. Um, It's not a weakness. I immediately tapped into who I normally am, which is I, I like to get the answers. I like to get things done. I like to understand. Um, And so when, when that stigma, I, I realized like I saw through it, I felt empowered to, you know, keep working with my therapist on, on, the depression and with the eating and um, opening up to my mom, who's a big support. So it's been great. You know, I, I never had to be um, treated in a uh, treatment center for my eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen for everyone. And so, you know, I hope no one feels like there's something not right in their recovery or their healing journey. If, you know, they, they need a longer time period or they need other things to help them. Everyone's journey is different. You know, we shouldn't compare. Sure. Well, I'm also eager to talk to you about your mental health advocacy and your nonprofit. You know, for college athletes, suicide is the fourth leading cause of death, and that is a very serious statistic. And so I can you talk to us about what you're doing now and, and how what kind of changes you hope to make and what your goals are and how listeners can get involved? Yeah, definitely. So The nonprofit I founded is called The Hidden Opponent, and that's titled after the TED Talk. And I think that it paints a great picture of this idea that as athletes, we're not always just competing with that person across the net or in a different color jersey, but there's that hidden opponent that we all face, and it most of the time is ourselves. And (laughs) um, I wanted to kind of unite athletes under one mission so that they felt like they had the support, the community, that there were free resources available to them that they could use and lean on, that there was a platform for them if they wanted to share their story about what they're going through. And so the nonprofit is just over a year old. We have over 
400 campus captains who are student athlete ambassadors of the mission who do various outreach tasks on their campuses um, and are hugely helpful in in us you know being where we are um, and an awesome leadership team of other incredible advocates who volunteer and who I work alongside who, you know, make everything possible. Um, and for anyone interested in joining or learning more about The Hidden Opponent, you can just find us on Instagram at The Hidden Opponent or thehiddenopponent.com. Um, and I think the last thing I'll say is the reason why it's so student athlete focused is because that was my experience. And so I have a special place in my heart for student athletes specifically. And of course, I think, you know, everyone everywhere should, should feel confident and have the support that they need. Um, but I really wanted this group of humans to feel seen. Yeah, I think it's great. I, as I was looking around and preparing for my interview with you, I looked at a story that a young woman had written and she was a student athlete and she had taken those some some coursework that was recommended to her on suicide prevention and they gave her a sticker and they said just put this where it's very visible and it said if you're feeling like hurting yourself talk to me and she hid it for a long time and she said she couldn't and then finally she put it on her water bottle where everybody could see it like several weeks later and nothing happened for a long time. And then finally a younger student athlete came to her and said, I do need to talk to you. And then she helped her get into therapy and she was there when she talked to her therapist about having self-harm thoughts. And so she realized that in her own struggle with allowing people to even know that she had gone to a suicide prevention course and uh, labeling herself as someone that might could help or would understand. It was just so powerful for so many. And I think that your organization is going to be just like that. And um, so obviously this is a huge part of the experience of college athletes. And I just, and I don't want to diffuse it by spreading it into the more general population of teenagers, but I do think that it's, uh, it's because it's such a vital message for student athletes. Um, but I also think that just that with the world getting smaller, I think this generation and these younger generations are having much more struggle thinking, how am I going to make a difference in the world? Because I now can see for myself how huge the world is and and how much opportunity there is and they get paralyzed. So well, anyway, I... I, I, I found that with a friend the other day. Not uh-huh. everyone has to change the world. I know. It's okay know. to just do what makes you happy and, and bring purpose to one person in your life's life. You know, I, I was talking with a friend who has a a sibling and I have, I have a younger sibling as well. And, you know, my older brother and I were D1 athletes. He was not. And, you know, there is that pressure that everyone has to do something phenomenal. And, you know, it's just not the case. And I, I hope more and more people and parents can mm-hmm. be okay with their their child just living a pleasant, happy life and making an impact in their small community. And hopefully, I mean, it starts with the parents as well when they when you raise the kids. I mean, I'm not a parent, so I'm not trying to parent shame, but I'll definitely be cautious of when I raise my child, you know, to not talk about what I think they're going to be in life. <laughs> 
But right, I think that's great. Right now. <laughs> and, and you know what? Because you're aware of it, you know, parents ask me all the time, well, with teenage depression going up, what can I do? And I said, talk about your vulnerabilities. Talk about things that you struggled with that you thought you wanted and it didn't turn out to be what you wanted. And, and talk about your disappointments and model for them that it's okay, as you say, to not have this huge life, but to have something that, that just brings you joy and, and or even just, you know, uh, gives you a sense of this is good. So uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. I'm so glad that you have this uh, nonprofit, The Hidden Opponent. I think it's going to be important. And um, I just think if self-work listeners want to join in or have uh, their own children who are in athletics or anything that might have this veneer of the need to hide any kind of mental health issue, that it will be really good for them to get more involved in it. So good luck to you with that. Thanks. Yeah, we would love that. So, you know, any parents of athletes or athletes can check out the community and we have a Facebook group for student athletes to, you know, feel like they can connect with athletes all around who might be going through similar things. Um, So thanks so much. And I, I had a great time chatting with you and appreciate you inviting me on. Thank you so much, Victoria. Thank you. Thank you all so much for being here today. Victoria was also kind enough to interview me for Perfectly Hidden Depression, and I'll let you know when that's going to be on. If you enjoyed her presentation, you can listen to that as well. I want to thank those of you who've taken the time, just a few minutes it takes even, but that is so special to me, to write a rating or review, either for my book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you have read it and wanted your thoughts about the book to be noted, but also to those of you who've written reviews and left ratings on wherever you listen to the Self Work Podcast. Here's one that was left in June on Apple. Dr. Rutherford presents great insights and help for many situations. Listening is almost like having had a therapy session. I find this podcast so much more helpful than others like it. I love hearing that. I want to hear more from you about what you want, topics you would like for me to discuss as we continue into what's going to be in October, a celebration of the fifth anniversary of self-work. You can reach me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. My website where you can subscribe is DrMargaretRutherford.com, and you'll get a weekly newsletter there which contains my weekly blog post and this podcast, which is an incredibly easy way to keep in touch. And I have a Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work if you'd like to check that out. It's a closed group, so it's very confidential, but it's also supportive. We make each other laugh, give each other advice, and just a listening ear. Again, thank you for being here. It's great to be back with you again. Please take very, very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.